Thank you, worship team, for providing music and allowing us to worship. These are great truths to remind us of his faithfulness to us. If you don't know me, my name is Aaron Smith. I am the pastor of student ministries here at Countryside Bible Church. And as our senior pastor, Rod Gertson, has been out of town on vacation, I've had the privilege of covering the pulpit for a few weeks. And so we've been walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I hope it's been an edifying time for you to think about these things. Um, It surely has been for me. So make your way to, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want to begin by reading the chapter in its entirety. This is a well-known chapter. Many of you probably have memorized it or memorized parts of it or know parts of it. But let me read the chapter in the entirety of the chapter, and we will consider the last handful of verses this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, the prophets mean nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. If you wanted a way to organize chapter 13 and some of the ground that we've covered so far in this wonderful chapter, 
here's sort of an outline of the chapter. Paul really gives us three critical perspectives on love that motivate the Christian toward a greater commitment to biblical love. The first week, we looked at the absolute necessity of biblical love. Again, loveless service is impotent service. Loveless service, loveless using of gifts in the context of the local church is ultimately powerless, spiritually speaking. And then, verses 4 through 7, what we talked about last week, he gives us the key features of biblical love. He says love is patient, love is kind. He's giving these these descriptions of biblical love. Remember, these are not just definitions. These are descriptions. He's saying here's what love looks like in the context of Christ's body, his, his church. Here's what it should look like. Here's what it constitutes. Again, not strict definitions, but a detailed description. It's beautiful. It's practical. And then in our time this morning, we're going to look at the enduring nature of biblical love, the enduring nature of biblical love. This is verses 8 through 13. Let me read verses 8 through 13 once again. I just want to, I, I want to center your thoughts on these six verses here. Verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the enduring nature of biblical love. We live in a world where everything wears out. We spend money to buy things that are new, not used and worn out. I mean, you know there are few things like buying a new car and having that fresh new car smell. There are few things like it. But of course, with every mile that you put on that car, that smell goes away and the car begins to wear down and break down. We buy new clothes and eventually they are either donated, trashed, or given to someone else. A brand new house a newly built house will eventually suffer decay and be in need of renovations. Even good, fun experiences lose their newness to us. Steak is good. Amen? Amen. Unless you have it every night. The Grand Canyon is majestic. Unless you live down the road. The point I'm making is we live in a world of 
impermanency, or we live in a world where things do not retain their value to us. Everything around us loses value over time. And so as Paul is communicating in 1 Corinthians 13, these wonderful details regarding love, he's giving this clear picture on the importance of love, and then he gives 15 separate descriptions of love in verses 4 through 7, and then he rounds the corner to verse 8, and he gives almost a 16th description of love, but then he spends the rest of his time building that out. And here's what he says, love never fails, or love is permanent. So when you begin to look at any passage of Scripture, I mean any passage of Scripture, in order to study it and and understand its meaning, you should have at least one main question in your head when you look at a passage. And that is, what is the main point of the passage? What is the main thing the biblical author is trying to drive at, trying to get into the heads of his audience? There is usually a main thing the Bible author wants to get across, a main exhortation, a main idea that he wants his people to walk away with. Sometimes these main points are hard to ascertain, hard to figure out. Other times, main points are very clear. And luckily, in our passage, his main point is very clear. The main point that Paul is working to get across to the believers in Corinth at this time is that Love will never fail. Love will never fail. Or literally, love will never fall down. It will always remain standing. It will never fade out. It will never wear out like the other things in this world that we're used to. That's his point. The eternal value of biblical love. And what he sets out to do in the rest of the passage, again, simply reinforces this idea. Love never fails. This is how he's trying to spur on these Corinthian believers towards greater love towards one another. Now, if you're not already aware of this, this passage has been debated and discussed Perhaps, I wouldn't say more than any other passage in the New Testament, but it's up there. There is a significant amount of debate regarding some of the things that we're going to read in in this passage. And we're going to talk about those things, and I'll tell you my position on these debates and these discussions. But I want to stop and realize right out of the gate that Paul is not writing this passage for the controversy. Paul is not writing this in order to be analyzed, merely analyzed by scholars. And from my perspective, if the thrust of the sermon, if the thrust of what you got today was about the debate 
If that's what you walked away with, then we're missing Paul's heart in this passage. We're missing Paul's true heart and his heart for the Corinthians and his heart for you and his heart for me is that we understand that love will never fail. Now, why would this have been important for the Corinthian church to understand? Why is it important for them to to know that love will never fail? Now, remember, this is a bit of review, but this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, falls between two chapters, 12 and 14, that are heavy in spiritual gifting theology, if you want to say the matter of spiritual giftedness. And if you recall, this church was obsessed with their own spiritual giftedness, their own talents, the, the things that God gave them to be used for the church. They were using for themselves, for self-adulation. They wanted the most attractive gifts. They wanted to be highly gifted. They wanted to be seen as being most blessed by God. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13 to remind them that without a heart of love, their ministry and activity within the church amounts to nothing. It has lost its spiritual impact. And so that's why he's pressing this topic of love so much. He's trying to readjust their focus from themselves towards others. After all, he says in chapter 12, that your gifts are given to you not for yourself. They're given for the edification of the church, the, the building up of the church. And in this passage, this is his last push at this. Corinthians, get this. He's trying to adjust the focus of their heart. He gives this other reason why they should be so characterized by love, and that's because Love never fails. Love is eternal. Read with me in verse 8. Let's look back at verse 8. And let's see how he does this, how he makes this push. Verse 8 says, love never fails. But, or if you want to put in parentheses, in contrast, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So when he says love never fails, he's not speaking in generalities. He's speaking in, of love in light of eternity. He's not being hyperbolic like we would. When we say never, oftentimes we mean sometimes. Like I would never go to a Nebraska football game. Uh, I might one day. I, I mean that sort of, uh, whenever I say love or, or I would never do something, what I really mean is, I, I really wouldn't want to do that. This is not like I would never do that. This, this is not hyperbolic. This is literal, never. There's a temporal aspect to this. The word never is important because he means it. He means never. Love will never cease. Love will never lose value. It will remain on for eternity. And then he gives these three specific gifts. He says, prophecy. 
tongues, and knowledge, those things will go away. Now, I want you to notice right out of the gate that these three gifts are what we would say that they're revelatory in nature. In other words, prophecy is God giving a message to his spokesperson to be conveyed to his people. Tongues, there's a revelatory aspect to that. Knowledge is not just knowledge in general. This is not like I know a lot. It's not just smarts. It's related very closely to prophecy. Something you get from a divine source. When you study words of knowledge, that's usually what it is talking about. Not just head knowledge about facts or anything else. And so he says, in contrast with love, these three gifts have an expiration date. These will, at some point, go out of use. The church will no longer be practicing these gifts. And so the reasoning is this. Hey, Corinthians, you've preoccupied yourself with things that are not built to last. So stop it. Stop preoccupying yourself with something that will fail. Preoccupy yourself with something that will never fail. Love for one another. There will never come a point where love will be out of use for Christians. So put your focus on the thing that has eternal value. Love. This is the main point of the passage, friends. This is it. Now, that being said, let's talk about the debate that surrounds this passage. There is a long-standing debate about whether or not some of the gifts of the Spirit that he mentions here are still in use today in our context. There's really two basic positions on this issue. The first is what, we, what is called uh, the continuationist position. Some of you guys may know this language. It's called the continuationist position. This position believes that nearly all of the, uh, excuse me, that, that, that many of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave to the early church are still in existence today. In fact, they would say all of the gifts, including tongues, including prophecy, including healings, including uh, the gift of being an apostle, which is mentioned in line with gifts, uh, in another passage, that these things continue on today. That God still gives these gifts in our context. They're still relevant. They're still being exercised at this very moment in history. And by the way, I think this would be the majority view in evangelicalism. I know very many people who are part of this category of thinking I have friends who think this way. They believe that the gifts mentioned in the Bible all still continue. So that's the continuationist position. The cessationist is just the opposite. The cessationist position comes from this verb meaning to cease. The cessationist viewpoint believes that certain gifts that were given to the church in the New Testament ceased to be in oper operation. They were unique to the early church age. 
Specifically, the cessationists would believe that the gifts of tongues, prophecy, healings, as I mentioned earlier, apostleship, have all ceased to be in operation. They are no longer used in the church for the building up of the church. No longer practiced. Now, the cessationist does not believe, as many would claim, that the Holy Spirit does not work anymore. I was, it was interesting, I was, I was scrolling last night on Twitter and I saw a famous pastor make a remark about cessationism. And it's, in essence, he said, cessationism is one step away from atheism. You're just not at the atheist point yet because you believe that God has stopped working. Well, that's not true. Cessationism believes that God still works. God still does miraculous things. He still heals people. He just doesn't use people. He doesn't give gifts that, 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 that accomplish that. So, so let me just give you a few things to think about. A few clear reasons why we as a church, why Countryside Bible Church believes in the cessationist viewpoint. Why do we believe that that is what scripture teaches? This is uh, certainly not going to be exhaustive. I'm going to simplify a lot. But I do hope that this helps you to think through why we believe this. And I believe, and I'm just going to take a few of the gifts, some of the ones mentioned here in the passage. I believe the best way to approach that question, do prophecy, do the, the, the tongues, do these continue on? Are they being practiced today? The easiest way to approach that question is to ask the question, when Scripture talks about these things, is it talking about the same thing that is being practiced today? If you were to take these gifts individually and assess how the Bible defines each of them, how the Bible defines prophecy, how the Bible defines speaking in tongues, what you would find is that the modern ways of approaching these gifts, are, it's radically different from what the Bible says they are. Again, let me just take prophecy and tongues since those are, are, are more relevant to our passage. Start with prophecy. The Bible says, number one, that the prophet, the true prophet, must be marked by personal godliness. We remember the chapter, Matthew 7, where he says, you will know them by, your, by their fruits. The them are false prophets. You will know that they are a, either a true prophet or a false prophet by how they live. That's one test. In fact, over the weekend, the head of one of the largest prophetic organizations in the country, down in Kansas City, has been hit with serious allegations regarding his conduct towards others, sexual conduct towards those around him. What you often see in these self-professed prophets is a complete lack of godliness. That's how you know they're a false prophet. That's one mark of a false prophet. They do not have a life that matches up with scripture's 
call for a Christian. Deuteronomy 13 says, in addition, that true prophets must be always consistent with previous revelation. It doesn't cross over or uh, it, it doesn't uh, null previous revelation. And then Deuteronomy 18 says the prophecy that the prophets give cannot be wrong. They always have to be right. That's the test of a true prophet. Let me just read the words in Deuteronomy 18. He says, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. This is a serious call to be a prophet. Verse 21 of Deuteronomy 18, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In the verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, the test of a true prophet is that all of his prophecies come to pass. And the moment that one doesn't, he's not a true prophet. He's got to be batting a thousand. And there is no one today who has that track record that scripture requires of prophets. Therefore, attempts have been made really to redefine what prophecy is in modern contexts. They would say, well, these are divine, impress divine impressions. These are more like words of wisdom that I give to someone does not match up with biblical prophecy. Biblical prophets did not receive prophetic impressions. They, they received direct, detailed revelation from God and they spoke as a mouthpiece for God himself. That's a far cry from a divine impression. That's notably different. Or they'll try to make the case that Old Testament prophecy is not the same as New Testament prophecy in its nature. I would just say, where do you see that in Scripture? You don't see it in Scripture. And then you tackle the use of tongues. Is that the same as what the Bible describes as tongues? And the answer is no. Most people who practice tongues today, they practice indiscernible speech. These are not true tongues. Tongues in the Bible were always authentic human languages being spoken authentic human languages, completely out of step with what tongues were in the first century church. And you can go down the list and look at healings. You can look at the gift of apostleship. And these things do not match what is being practiced today. The cessationist position would say these were gifts given to the early church in their infant stage. So suddenly you can see why our passage is important for this topic. Because Paul, in verse 8, seems to indicate that these gifts will, will cease. They will be done away with. And then he names three, again, specifically prophecy, tongues, gifts of knowledge. Again, that's revelatory knowledge. This is, this is not general knowledge. And he says these will go out of operation at some point. Now listen, this is not really the crux of the issue. No cessationist, no, uh, no continuationist will argue with the fact that these gifts will reach their termination point. 
The question that is often raised is when? When will that happen? Paul says they're going to. It's hard to argue with that. So when will the gifts cease? When will tongues and prophecy and these gifts of knowledge, when will these things come to an end? That's the issue. Well, Paul tells us when in verses 9 and 10. Read with me in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. And then verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So the expiration date on these gifts, these miraculous gifts, these revelatory gifts is when the perfect comes. You see how that's important? When the perfect comes, that's going to coincide with some of these gifts going out of operation. So, if the perfect came soon after Paul wrote this, then tongues and prophecy would not be around today. If the perfect coming is still future, then... It stands to reason that some of these gifts are still in operation. They're still in use today. So the obvious question is, what or who is the perfect? And has the perfect come yet? That's the question. That's the, that's the debate. So, listen, there are three primary views on this. I don't want to bore you with the argument too much, but I think it's important that you know that there are three primary views that have emerged over time with this verse, verse 10, the perfect. Who is the perfect? What is the perfect? The first view is the, the perfect refers to Christ at his second coming. So therefore, Jesus is the perfect, and when he comes back to rapture his church, at that point, these gifts will cease to function. Question, has Christ come back to receive the church yet? No. So, that would mean that because that has not happened, the gifts can continue until then. Now, you can also have a cessationist point of view on this. You can also say, well, Paul didn't know when Christ would come and he, he expected that he would come soon. You can say all that. But that's the first, and I would say the majority view, that the perfect is Christ's coming. I'm just going to put my cards out on the table. I don't think that's what he's referring to. I'm not denying that Christ was perfect. Don't hear me say that. Christ was perfect. But Jesus Christ is never referred to as the perfect in Paul's writings. And I think as you see this passage play out, you're going to see why this does not match up with some of the analogies he uses, and specifically verse 13. This, this seems to not really jive as well, if you will, with the rest of the passage. We'll see that as we go along. The second view is that the perfect refers to the New Testament canon of Scripture. So when the perfect comes, Paul says, he has in mind... The New Testament revelation, this body of revelation. He envisions that these certain gifts were going to go away at the time of the completion of the New Testament. 
Um, listen, I, this one is very close to what I hold to on this passage. I just don't frankly think that Paul had a canon of scripture, a completed New Testament revelation in mind when he was writing. I don't think he was envisioning a finished corpus of divine literature. And, and, and furthermore, I don't think that if Paul's writing to be clear, I don't think the Corinthians would have just picked up on this. I don't think they would have easily understood the reference. So then the third view that has emerged over time, and this happens to be one, the one that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advocate for, is that the perfect in verse 10 refers to the spiritual maturity of the church. The spiritual maturity of the church. Again, this is sort of a cousin, if you will, to the previous view. It sort of goes hand in glove with the New Testament canon view. But this view essentially says that the Corinthian church and other churches by extension would reach a point of spiritual development, spiritual maturity and stability to where these revelatory gifts are no longer necessary. I believe this would have been easily understood by the Corinthians. The Greek word for perfect literally means mature. And they would have understood the language. Paul refers to a mature church using the same word in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, describing the growth of the church, growing into maturity, growing into perfection. But this is not ultimate perfection, but this is maturity. And additionally, I think this makes the most sense with the rest of the passage and the analogies that Paul utilizes. So I'll try to highlight that as we go. So in essence, I believe Paul is setting the expectation in the Corinthians' mind that some of those most prized gifts, those gifts that they wanted, would die off sooner rather than later. He's saying that the church will reach a point where there will no longer be a need. That's the key word. There will no longer be a need for these gifts. I believe those gifts were given to the early infant church to stabilize them until they reached a point where they no longer needed this revelation. In other words, Paul is saying that these gifts that were given to this church were like training wheels that were no longer needed. The training wheels would be taken off of this church once they reached a point of maturity. So then I, I think the analogy in verse 11 makes sense a little bit more. Read with me in verse 11. Verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, I understand that many want to take this verse and say, this is the reason that, boys, you need to put away your video games and become a man, get a job, all that, be disciplined. People want to say that this is Paul teaching on manhood and masculinity. And I think Paul would agree that men need to put away some of the trivial childlike distractions and, and act like men. I think Paul would agree with that. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. There's another passage for that. 
But what he's doing here is he's using an analogy. This is an analogy that as a person matures, certain things are left behind. So Paul tells this church, what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. Is that just as a child will reach a point where they are an adult in certain childhood ways of thinking, speaking, acting, reasoning, those things will be done away. When the church reaches a level of spiritual maturity, these gifts that you desire so greatly will be left behind. You see how that fits? This is just an analogy of the early church growing out of its dependence on some of these revelatory gifts. Those are temporary, Paul says, but love, in contrast, is eternal. So focus your mind there. Busy yourself there. And then verse 12, he uses a second analogy to make his point. He says in verse 12, for now... Right now, he says, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What's he talking about here? According to religious historian Everett Ferguson, mirrors in the first century were made of polished metal, usually bronze, but sometimes silver. Hence, unlike modern glass mirrors, ancient mirrors gave only a dim reflection So the mirrors that they were using in this context were not the same mirrors that we have. We have glass mirrors. The reflection is pretty good. I mean, depending on who you are, I guess, or how you view yourself. (laughs) Generally, there's detail there. It's accurate. But when you're looking into a first century mirror, there there is a lack of detail. There's a lack of clarity. That's the issue. The the word dim literally means in a riddle. It's it's distorted to some sense. And so he's using the analogy of a mirror and saying, hey, when we look in the mirror, these things are sort of confusing. It's in a riddle. It's, It's dim. So he explains what he means by some of these gifts ceasing by saying, we are in a stage where we don't have a clear picture of everything. Does this remind you of Revelation not the book, the divine revelation, the revelatory nature of these gifts, where these gifts are only providing us with a partial picture of what's truly going on. But then when the church reaches this mature state, we will see face to face. Now, many people think this must mean when Christ returns and we see him face to face. Listen, I think he's just continuing the analogy. He's saying that the clarity that looking into an ancient dim mirror offered was nothing compared to the clarity of seeing someone face to face. If you were to say that's Christ and that's literal, then you're doing away with the analogy. You would say, well, the mirror part's an analogy and the second part's literal. No, it's all an analogy. It's all part of one thing. There is more clarity that will come that will coincide with this perfect coming. So what's going to be the mark of this mature church having reached this state of maturity? Well, they need no further revelation. There's more detail. He says, 
The second part of verse 12, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Again, this points back to what the spiritual gifts that he mentions earlier in the passage offers. It's revelatory in nature. And he says, that's dim. Now I know in part. He's dealing with limited revelation. And then he says, we have those now because we need them, but there will come a time when we won't. And we will know fully, just as I have been fully known. This is not, when he says fully, this is not a complete knowledge. It's not omniscience. No of you believes that. No one believes that we will be omniscient now or in heaven. This is not actual filled out knowledge. This is mature, stable knowledge without any need of supplementary sources of knowledge or revelation like prophecy. So here's what I believe. I believe that Paul is setting the expectation into the mind of the Corinthians that these gifts would soon be done away. But what's constant? What's constant? Love is constant. So Corinthians, focus yourself there. Listen to how he finishes the chapter. Verse 13, beautiful verse. Verse 13, he says, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three. Let's pause there. Here's what he says. When he says now, he's not saying like therefore, or he's not, this isn't just rhetoric. He's contrasting what will cease in the gifts and what will remain. He says, but now in our present moment, three things remain, faith, hope, and love. They abide. These remain on. That's what that word abide means. They remain. They're not going away anytime soon. But he says the greatest of these is love. Have you ever thought about what that actually means? Why is love greater than hope and, and faith? And here's what I would say. Even faith and hope, though they remain right now and they're a part of our current experience as Christians, faith and hope will have a termination point where love will not. Remember, right now, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And it's not until Christ calls us home that faith will become sight. Faith will be sight at a certain point. And then hope, Romans 8, 24-25, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what, they already, uh, what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Listen, there will be a day when hopes will be fulfilled. Faith will be sight. Hopes will be fulfilled. Heaven, our eternal state, will be utterly hopeless. In the, in the best sense of that word. As one of my favorite songs says, this is, this is a, the last stanza of this song called uh, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. Maybe you've heard it. I told, I told my wife I want these words on my tombstone, by the way. So you guys hold her to that, all right? <laughs> Listen to this. He says, 
He's talking about heaven. He said, haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Here's what he says. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight. So faith will change to sight. And prayer to praise. So lovely words. Hope and faith will continue on for now until they become sight. But love will continue on through eternity. Now, maybe you have trouble with this concept. I've asked myself, why is love eternal? What does he mean, love is eternal? Or it never fails? Spent some time thinking about this question. I think there's a few ways you can, uh, you can answer it. There's a few angles you can take. But I think first and most related to the context is that love is eternal in that love's impact will be felt into eternity. What I mean by that is that as the church engages in biblical love, as we do the things in verses 4 through 7, as we're patient with each other, as we're kind with one another, as we refuse to be jealous of one another, as we endure with one another, the effects of this will be felt into eternity. There will be an eternal echo of these things, an everlasting ripple effect of your love towards one another. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage. This is why the Corinthians have to put away the partial, put away the things that will go and focus on the things that will stay. Love. There's a wonderful quote speaks to this, one of my favorite quotes. It's out of a book called The Weight of Glory. Here's what he says. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping one another to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. it, It is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry and snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Here's his point. Everyone that we deal with will live on into eternity. Everyone that you're around right now will go on into eternity. And so the impact that you leave on a person is an eternal one in some sense if you're loving them the way the Bible calls you to love them. Another way you can think about this is love is eternal and that Christ's love is going to be the reason you are in heaven. Another way you think about this, love is eternal and that God is love and heaven will be God with his people. Love is eternal and that love will be what your heart will forever overflow with towards God. 
Love will reach its culmination in eternity. It'll reach its zenith. It'll be at its absolute highest point because we will be absolutely perfect. And what does it mean to be absolutely perfect and perfected other than us unceasingly fulfilling the two great commandments, loving God and with your all, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All sin and imperfection on this side of heaven boils down to at least one of those categories. You're either failing to love God like we should, or we fail to love our neighbor as we should. So it stands to reason that in the perfect state, when we are in eternity and we've been glorified and we are perfect, we will be doing these things perfectly. An unceasing and sustained perfect love for Christ and an unceasing sustained love for others. That's what heaven will be like. So friends, I... I hope that 1 Corinthians 13 spurs you on to greater love. I hope that it redirects your focus towards one another in love. That's, that, that is God's will for you. To busy yourself loving one another, placing your focus on the thing that will have everlasting impact, love for one another. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for how it challenges us, how it convicts us. I pray that our hearts would be ones that are full of love towards one another and you. God, help us shake off the things that are temporal, shake off the things that are short-lasting but put on a heart of love towards one another. I pray that you would work that in this congregation. That is your will for us and I pray that by your grace we can, we can obey and fulfill the two great commands to love you and to love others. Thank you for your son and the love that he showed us. It's in his name that I prayed. Amen.